She go down this cliff, go, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. My truth is a truth <laughs> that you will never understand. Private ownership is one single individual giving free light. Doesn't that tell you that your system is more akin to authoritarian dictatorship? It's no editing! I know where the autonomous collection What the heck is a D? How come you can buy our house when it's our house and we live there? Just when these American citizens needed their rights the most, their government took them away. The rights aren't rights if someone can take them away. They have every man in a straitjacket. To leave a country is like breaking out of jail. And to enter a country is like going through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a Polish looking in the mirror at itself. Okay, welcome to this live edition of the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself, the meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly weigh the flags of those three lefts. As I try to find some kind of synthesis of ideas and strategies, a uh, disunited left, and, uh, you know, I actually saw a pretty neat little video that it argue that, like, the, this left unity thing is, is always a misnomer, because the different tendencies, there are actual legitimate, uh, let's see, uh, foundational differences between their frames of thinking and, and what their goals are, actually. They just happen to be on the same side when it comes to being confrontational to the status quo, capitalist establishment, yada yada. So there's certainly tactical unity. I've, I've discussed this in the past. Now I'm continuing from, I don't know, was it last week's or the week before last? Uh, I did an hour show because I was having some cold symptoms. Uh, still kind of do. Uh, is, it, is it just some longer, larger, late allergies because the weather just changed? from mild to uh, at least cold at night? Or is it some kind of other thing? I don't know. But I've been achy. But anyway, I'm covering election issues, continuing uh, the second hour of this show, uh, two-hour program, will be kind of the gamut of going through all the different electoral reforms and how to go about them in an activist manner, because that is pretty much the only way. Of, of getting this stuff done or even potentially thinking about it because otherwise you, you mentioned the need for reform even something as simple as making election day a holiday you know a state holiday if not a federal one i'm about to have veterans day off tomorrow and then two weeks later is thanksgiving what's another one maybe uh maybe move uh, washington's birthday to election day one of those days that just, what is this, this has no business being a national holiday, you know, or something like that. 
Um, is, is MLK Day a national holiday? Uh, I think it depends on what state you're in. <laughs> I don't know the details. But the point is, uh, we could use more national holidays and let even just making Election Day, just moving it actually doesn't have to be a, a, a holiday if we move it to Sunday. Just move it to Sunday. No, too much of an ask. Too expensive. Whatever lame excuse is given. It all seems so impossible. You know, every, every, every cycle or so, term limits are brought up for local uh, officials. It never goes anywhere because there's never actually a mass movement demanding it. Uh, there's no mass movement for anything. Only activist groups that are professionalized and whatever. I could rant about it. I've covered this, uh, these topics in other shows. Um, but this, uh, this program today will focus on last week's elections. Uh, not everything, of course, but more of a general kind of look at the different strategies of dementryism, Green Party work, though Green Party stuff will actually be, be on the back seat, as a lot of the stories in the first half will actually be more of an examination of DSA. Uh, not to be, it's not overly negative, it's, it's more of a tevia on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of, and then you get Jew, a Jewish version of, of balanced opinion. Uh, although I'm not sure I'll come to any conclusion as far as you, the listener, is concerned, I leave you to make your own conclusion. My conclusion was made uh, a long time ago, probably back in 2014, when I was helping someone to, uh, someone run as a Democrat in a primary, and it was just the worst experience of my life, um, getting an inside look at the trading and the jockeying for county committeemen seats and, and who what kind of people end up there or... Maybe they're all nice in certain ways, but then it's still this this uh, this machine in some form um, where it just it's just about the money. Who's you know is my neighborhood going to get some money? It's there's no policy, there's no ideology, there's no vision. It's just or the vision is just you know it's jobs, it's just neoliberal looking at things. So. I'll be coming back around, a theme of mine for my neuroses, I guess, is the my hatred for where the political spectrum is in America. These conservative Democrats are moderate, you know, the center. The liberals are left of center. You know, the capitalists, corporatists, these, they're actually liberal. And they can even be seen uh, in, some, in certain light uh, progressive because, oh, they, they uh, co-sponsored a bill here and there uh, that's, that I li may like. But do they actually support it? Uh, no. Um, or when it comes to a vote, then they'll suddenly change their mind. But let's say like, if you actually want to expand public property, community ownership, you're a communist. You know, and I proudly, I can take that label. Okay, I'll wear it. I don't care because I care about the policy. If you're a socialist in America, that just means you're, you're for social programs and maybe some public-private partnerships that are actually more public than private or they are some type of non-capitalist ownership but also still very much within a capitalist uh, market and not circumventing market economics, stuff of monopolies, and so on. Just breaking up monopolies. But see, breaking up monopolies is still very, very helpful to that petty bourgeois, that the, 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 that landowning class, the regional millionaires, they like that. So is, is it really working class politics? No, it is not. But that's 
kind of a rant that's in the back background, but I'm going to start with, I'm going to, you know, I'm covering some positive stuff as well. All right. It's not going to, I'm just, I'm actually more sprinkling in the negative than being just critical of any, you know, any democratic socialist. Because I'm also, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to cover their kind of victory lap article. And uh, I'm actually, I don't have it logged up right here, uh, the results from the Green Party. So the first story, which would have come if I did the second hour last time, uh, is a part from Current Affairs. This is a, um, they're restructuring right now to be a, a true co-op or at least a, have more power sharing between the writers, editorial staff, what have you. And the title is, Meet the Democratic Socialist Holding Barack Obama's Old State Senate Seat. So this is a conversation from Nathan Robinson, I believe. It's a conversation with the activist legislator Robert Peters about how a leftist can operate on the inside, how to get your bill signed into law, and how leftists can adopt effective messaging on public safety and violence, which I can I'll likely skip because I kind of covered that in previous episodes about police abolition, police reform, whatever. This is more about the, you know, and I've also, I don't know, I think I've covered it um, in a strong way in other episodes about, you know, insider-outsider strategy that if you look, look, if you're an insider, then there needs to be outsider organizations putting pressure on you, and you want that to be there, but I don't see the balance of that. I mean, in some in some context, there is that balance. And here's where at least there's a, this guy talks about such a thing. So Robert Peters is a 36-year-old Illinois state senator who represents the state's 13th district. It's the seat once held by Barack Obama from 97 to 04. But Robert Peters does not share Obama's centrist politics. Peters is a member of the DSA and a former delegate for Bernie Sanders. He has tried to steer a novel path, moving in mainstream Democratic Party circles while grounding himself in movement politics. Peters was part of the Coalition to End Money Bond which earlier this year successfully made Illinois the first state in the country to actually abolish cash bail. I believe New York has become a second, because I know we did that last year as well, with similar results as in Illinois. Positive results, by the way, but also results in that there's this backlash of conservatives. During his first year in office, Peters was the chief co-sponsor of 13 bills that were signed into law, including measures eliminating private detention centers, Oh, you know, just basic non-fascist stuff, not being fascist. Providing college students with SNAP benefits, that's good, because otherwise I don't think they would qualify for it. Uh, increasing access to preventative HIV care for minors. Increasing accountability for the foster care and correction system. And ending the Department of Corrections practice of suing ex-prisoners to recoup the costs of their imprisonment. What would they sue them for? Oh, we can only guess, but we can, I mean, maybe that's something else to read. But this is all just kind of meat and potatoes, helping people with the little things, kind of where you can. Not systemic change. It's not kind of non-reformist reforms. These are just things that are alleviating the harms of our system. Which, if you're in office, it can it can be said is all you can do. Unless, but I I disagree. You can do more radical things. For example, marry gay people. <laughs> Something you agree, mayor did. It was illegal at the time, but he did it. Because you can do illegal things for office. You just you expect to be sued. You expect to be taken to court for it. But as a public official, you have a lot more heft. The ability to uh, 
to actually go to court and uh, and, and not be crushed. Anyway, Peters recently spoke to Current Affairs Editorial-in-Chief Nathan Robinson about his work on cash bail, how leftists can talk about violent crime and blah, 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 blah. He talked about his fashion choice. Robinson jokes with him. So Robinson asks, am I right? You're the only DSA person in the Illinois State Senate. Peters says yes. So that's a landmark victory. And it's been a hell of a journey to get where you are today. And I wondered if you could start by telling me, by telling our listeners, because he's interviewing him via podcast form. Maybe I should just be, well, I'm not. You're listening to my voice, folks. It's Monopoly of Dan here. You're going to listen to me speak in other people's voice. <laughs> I could be playing their, uh, the video or the podcast then just react to it. But no, I'm not going to do that. So... Yeah, so my path here is a long path, I would say. So a little bit of my background. I was born during the war on drugs during Reagan's presidency. My biological mom was addicted to drugs. I was forced into adoption, and I was born deaf. So hard of hearing, or small d, deaf. I developed a speech impediment, had ADHD. You know, it wasn't the easiest childhood physically. And then, for much of my life, my adopted mom struggled with alcoholism. She struggled with mental health issues. We live in a world where you're not supposed to talk about these things, and you're supposed to go through them on your own. And I was lucky enough to have a community that invited me into their home, a neighbor who had a door open. And so I grew up, was able to have surgery, which helped me have with my hearing, develop my ability to speak with a speech pathologist. I still struggled with ADHD. I still do struggle in that category, especially with anxiety. I can relate. Over the last 30 or 40 years, we told people to pick themselves up by their bootstraps that just don't exist. And for me, the best way to get through life is if we do it together, understanding that you have to treat each other as neighbors on this planet, look out for each other. I was raised in the right politically active Hyde Park in Chicago, my predecessor being the former president, Barack Obama, so Hyde Park has a history. Hill Washington lived in Hyde Park. It's just very politically active. After the Great Recession, I couldn't find a job. My mom, before she passed away, had $3,000 of housing debt she shouldn't have had. I was angry. I always knew I was angry about something. Why am I angry? And it was organizing. Some organizers at the People's Lobby that did a really good job of helping me find why I was angry. So I just want to take aside how critical it is that you know when you organize to be an activist is also to educate others to raise their political consciousness. Just by osmosis, just by being around such people, just be banging around me. I'll drop little hints of like, yeah, yeah, I have a woke opinion. Here's my interpretation. It's something come that I call cold from. Uh, years of of news watching and reading, you know, 20 books. <laughs> oh, yeah, so I was angry. I was angry at a system that clearly had failed my biological mom. It had failed my friends, my neighbors, my adopted mother. It failed my dad in many ways. My dad was a civil rights lawyer and a criminal defense attorney. He was always taking on the police for police violence. I mean, he's the last line of defense for a lot of people. And it was a false promise that was always said to people. So many people being told that they're going to get a thing that just never seems to come. And so I went into organizing. I worked on a lot of campaigns. I worked in traditional democratic politics and then found my voice in terms of a left space and organized around that. So I don't know what he meant um, by left space, but a left space within the Democratic Party. Mm. So I think that's what he meant, the Bernie Sanders movement. But he helped start the End Money Bond Coalition, fought to increase the minimum wage, fought to tax corporations and the wealthy. And then I was lucky enough to be appointed to be a state senator. So I'm gonna make, uh, that's, that's a critical point in this um, interview for me. 
that he wasn't elected, he was appointed. And he, and he understands this. He's very conscious of the implication of that, that he's a DSA member. Like, I think that, that is what he is. Like, he isn't a DSA-endorsed Democrat because he's progressive enough or he's, he, he endorses or he is for social programs and things like that. No, it is that he is a DSA type of person, a Bernie Sanders, a Bernie crap, who was appointed because he was, and he will explain, friends with the right dude. So it's a system where, and it's you probably hear this and you probably hear it too much, and you recognize it too much if you actually have a somewhat okay job, that it's not what you know, it's who you know. What you know is somewhat important, but it's not, it's what you know, it's who you know. That reference sheet when applying for jobs is critical. And if it doesn't have the right name on it, or the right type of name on it, or the right type of reference on it, if you don't have that reference, if you can never get that kind of reference, you have to work an entirely different field to get that reference, you're not getting hired. And that, that goes for political office, too. That's what it feels like. Unless you really have the grassroots campaign built over 10 years, a movement, you have to be appointed by a friend. You have to be, you have a reference. And it's weird that he can do all of this DSA stuff, this uh, the Bernicrat stuff, but he had the right relationship. And this could be kind of the, well, that's how it is, and that's how it works, and that's what you should do if you want to be effective. I'm like, that's not the way it should be. We should be actively not doing that. At least that's my cup of tea. Because I don't want to perpetuate that. Because the world where you have to know the right person is the world we live in, and it's a world of depredation and poverty, at least for a third of the people. And it's only, we're all downly mobile because of it. Because there's just fewer and fewer right people to know. Until eventually, the right you need to know the right person just to get the clean drinking water. That's where this leads, the dysopia. So anyway, Robinson says, I didn't ask for your entire life story. I do realize that the question was, tell me everything that has happened to you up until now. It was a very unfair way to begin. Uh, so anyway, Peters, so my two predecessors are the former president and the current attorney general of state, Kamani Raul. So I feel absolutely no expectations here. Yeah, the pressure's off. I mean, it's weird. A sort of, I sort of thrive better that way. When you have ADHD and anxiety, sadly, because of the way the world works, you develop a process where you feel like you're always under pressure. In college, I would wait to write a paper until 10 o'clock the night before, and then I would just go at it, and then it was maybe not the best grammatically written paper, but I think it was the big work that helped me get through college. I would take a full week to write something, and I would basically be doing, you know, three hours a night or something like that. I would proofread incessantly, but still have many errors. <laughs> because I didn't really have a proofreader. I think that's something that um, I, I think colleges try to provide, but it's not like right there at the front door, like here is the proofreading station. Submit your paper and may tomorrow we'll proofread it, but you know, and we'll check it if you, uh, I mean, there there's softwares that are attempting to do that, I guess, and that's what spell check is supposed to do, but it's not really, um, you, need, you need a human's eyes to be able to interpret whether you've written something that, that feels like a good sentence. That is aesthetically a good sentence. So um, did you say you were appointed to office? How did that work? So I have a close relationship with the county board president and the head of the Cook County Democratic Party, Tony Preckwinkle. What a name. I was able to get appointed by the Democratic committeeman when Kamea Rule became Real, 
became attorney general. And some people ask me, how does that work? And I would say, I don't know if I could tell you that you can mimic my path to governing power. You know, I have two rounds of civil disobedience. I was a Bernie delegate twice, and I have a close relationship to Democratic Party politics, and I fundamentally believe the system is broken. Then why does he participate in it? Okay. I don't know, but, well, he, he does good, right? Contradictions abound in all activism. I'll admit that. I don't know if I can say to somebody else, you should do it exactly how I did it. Well, you can't. We all can't do that. Just like how everyone can't be a millionaire. Someone actually has to do the work of making value that gets extracted. You can't just, everyone just can't be house flipping and, uh, and stock trading because who's making the value that makes the stock go up in value? Sorry. I'm ranting about other things that I see about like just in, in, in our current economic situation, there is a preponderance of get rich quick or get some type of economic security through just being a capitalist or pretending to be a capitalist. And it makes my stomach churn. It makes me nauseous. Now, I would say, I don't know if you can tell you, you know, after the Great Recession, I couldn't find a job. And this is in 2009, and I worked in politics as an intern. And everyone was like, well, what a great decision. What great work you did. And I was like, nah, I was lucky. I worked for a candidate who was projected not to do well, who did an amazing job, and then whooped everyone's butt in the primary, and that played a big role. So he rode someone's coattails. You must be, a, so Robinson asked, you must have a kind of complex relationship with the Democratic Party politics, because obviously your politics as a Sanders delegate, pretty far on the left, DSA member, and yet it seems like you've managed to maintain good relations or better relations than one might expect with people who are not far to the left as you. I assume you struggle sometimes to decide the degree to which you need to act as an outsider and criticize the Democratic establishment and the degree to which you need to sort of work closely with it and be careful to cultivate good relations. Now, all of that is pretty much true. But I, what I observe is that it is an amazingly easier time of doing that, you know, being bipartisan, talking with people who are on the other side of the aisle, other conservatives, and he talks about this. But he's doing so as an equal, as an equal participant in the duopoly. Regardless of, quote, how far left he is, he is still a Democrat in the duopoly. That's, it seems really reductive to say that, but it, and I, I see it as, it's my truth. But I feel it's, I feel it's backed by a lot of evidence. That for all, all, all everything else aside, right, that it's, it's good, that what he does is good, and how he acts is good, rather within the system. He's able to do this stuff. So you know, I'll go on. So he says it depends. It's situational. You have to pick and choose. First of all, I don't have enough organized power to pretend, nor do people pay enough attention to state senators. I hope we get to a point that they do just to fight for the sake of the fight. I fundamentally believe that there needs to be a combination of things. Organized power, I organize on the inside, and you pick and choose when you're going to do battle on something. Because I don't have enough energy or time to try to fight every battle. I mean, in all honesty, my hope is that more people get into office. To be on Well, see, the thing is, there's a limited number of seats, Jack. There's a limited number of seats. More people can't get in if there is not more offices and more seats. A greater, larger legislature. Because you can have legislators that are a 1,000 people. That's what party congresses are. 
What if that was the government? Sounds like a mess? No, I call it democracy. More representation, not less. But until, but you have Democrats proposing putting caps on the number of state Senate seats. Now, I don't think that proposition passed in New York, but it was like that was number one. Now, I'm of the belief that power respects power. See, they, they respect him because he's has some power there. Because he is a Democrat. He was appointed by someone with power. So he must he has power by proxy. Not by a movement who put him where he is, but because he was in the right position and he knew the right people. Now he made the choice of campaigning and joining all these campaigns, and he said he was working for an underdog. So likely he was the more progressive candidate, let's say. But they were all still Democrats. Capitalists. At the end of the day, their policy, even if it's a socially aware policy or a socially beneficial policy, at the end of the day, it's still just cleaning up capitalism. It's still just, well, we need to make sure people can make money downtown. If that means cleaning up the, the homeless and, and building shelters so that the homeless you know, aren't driving down pop, pop property values, remember that the end goal is higher property values, not more housing for the sake of it. That's the way I see it. And they'll talk about it, and they'll say it as much. So I am of the belief of power, respect, power, so I try to tie myself to the movement as much as possible because I am the conduit for their organized power and governing position. And they are the conduit for me being able to govern the way I want to. And if those are tied together, it makes it easier to get things done under the dome. I always think of the end of bond money coalition. We're the first state in the country to abolish cash bail. And a large part of being able to do that was the coalition flexed a good amount of outside power, understood that you do need to hire some people to work under the dome. Hire them. Hi, what does it mean, hire? To translate the language of the movement to people in the Capitol. So, yeah, so he refers to under, in the Capitol, Capitol building. So I want you to talk about the work you did on bail, where there were moments where when you realized, oh, you can actually win stuff if you organize well. You can actually change things. For this series, I'm interviewing left people who have reached government and who have accomplished things to help get rid of the sense of hopelessness by talking to people who have fought hard fights then actually noticed at a certain point that they had managed to accomplish at least some of what they wanted to accomplish. So do you recall whether there was a moment where you were like, oh my God, we're actually going to change the bail practice here? This is Robson asking. So Peter's response, it's funny because I'm extremely competitive. Of course, you have to be, right? You can't be a cooperative guy and, and be appointed. You have to be competitive. You have to beat out someone else. I wonder who he beat out. I mean, he, he, he's, un, he's overcome many hardships, right? But that doesn't make me feel better about the, the process here. And so when somebody says something's impossible, I'm like, okay, so you're telling me I need to go ahead and try it. And I like that attitude. Now, I think the people I organize and work with are pretty similar. Looking at that challenge, when we were first doing this, now, of course, see, that, that's the attitude I have, like, oh, Green Party, never worth it possible can't ever win I'm like oh so you're saying it's worth doing and i feel comfortable in my position i feel comfortable about uh, what we're doing to build power and who i am not to have to be defensive about what we're doing if we're going to play this game about who's got the right vision for the world who cares about the safety of the world i will put ours up against anybody i still feel a part of this coalition we build an amazing coalition i think it's a model coalition for the rest of the country it has grassroots groups that are going to mess with you with direct action. It has grassroots groups that are going to work on elections. It has groups that work directly on policy. It has the policy org who understands their place 
is specifically on policy. It has communications to make sure that it communicates broadly. I even recommended that we hire a lobbyist. I said, there are do-gooder lobbyists in the Capitol. Let's hire them. They, he, knows who, he knows they exist because he's, been, he's, he's there. He can, he can see whether the lobbyists are actually do-gooders, not just slime balls, I guess. But we brought in an amazing set of people who work inside the Capitol, so combining all of that. I think that for all of us, yes, we were nervous, anxious, and though, uh, and thought, uh, this is going to take forever to get done. But we were so committed to making this happen. The coalition is such a model to the point where the lead public defender of Cook County comes from the coalition, Sharon Mike Mitchell. And they've gotten me into becoming a state senator. I always say, I come from the coalition, and the two of us are doing amazing work in governing power because of this coalition. Now, he's absolutely right about that. You're not going to gain power of any kind, even grassroots, anarchistic power, without a coalition. And until I start seeing, like, collectives and anarchist cells actually forming, like, some large body, you know, I, I don't take it seriously. Because where's the coalition? Where's the anarchist coalition? Where's the mutual aid uh, coalition? You know, what, what, what form would that take? What would, they, what would their goals be? Probably more than uh, what's uh, the refuse of the system. Past what's uh, grown in uh, gardens. You know, eventually, eventually, when when uh, when an anarchistic uh, mutual aid uh, group starts making pasta, and the kind of things that stock my pantry that beyond the vegetables, uh, then I'm like, yes, we can bite the hand that formally fed us. And that and that's the end of that one, I think. Yes, no, no, there's more. Sorry, he just put a big ass ad, big ad in the middle of it there. So I'm going to stop there, though. I think you get the sense of it. He keeps going on about the Barrel Form uh, Coalition and the, you know, its place as an insider, the type of lobbying, uh, not lobbying, the type of uh, lawmaking he does. It's all very good and well, well and good. But if you are a third party, if you're independent, the most you can get is writers. The most you can get is, uh, you know, you, you are not seen as an equal. You are not respected. You know, Sanders, always an outsider, has only found respect by, um, well, he says he's found respect, but really, um, I mean, he's, he's best friends with Biden. He's best friends with the very people that treat him like dirt and trample uh, his political aspirations and those uh, of those he represents, which is quite a sizable amount of people. So, yeah, so otherwise, a very positive person, and, uh, but uh, in a very not positive system. This podcast is, is really more about system change than... than tinkering with uh with bail reform but it is very positive and of course the historical argument of course now on the other hand big changes are made up of many small changes and if you do enough changes over you know decade by decade you have transformed uh the system although this has kind of been the mantra since the 60s and the more things change the more they stay the same in some ways i thought i just had if you're not aware of the concept of future shock, it's where you get really confused or you, know, you get psychologically damaged by things changing too fast. Technology, corporate consolidation, the way markets and the, the economy is, you know, is in crisis, it's insecure, things are constantly changing. Your life could be turned upside down. COVID, the pandemic was the ultimate kind of confluence of future shock. The future of, of pandemics in our daily lives has come. And a lot of people went insane if they weren't already. But it made them even more insane. Uh, oh, it's so, so crazy. But anyway, future shock. You know, it's victims 
are everywhere. And it, I relate this to how local government would be, or all government really, since Future Shock became a force in our lives, a postmodern times since the 60s, that government has been, been amazingly conservative, that its main raison d'etre, its, its reason, its mission is to maintain stability in an ever-quickening, changing world. I kind of get that sense that, like, there's this continuity that things like governments can't change things too fast. They say this over and over and over and over and over. And this comes to mind in the current conversation about COP24, about a certain quote that I'll mine. Every few years, the powers that be at these international climate conferences or what have you, and it doesn't have to be environmental issues or climate change. It could be any issue, really. They say, we will do X by in 20 years. It'll be 10 years, we'll build out railroads, or we'll fix the traffic problem, or we'll end deforestation. But they've been saying it every year since I was born and before I was born. If they were going to do it, they could do it next year. They don't have to wait till 2050 to cut emissions. We can cut emissions now. Ah, but it will be a big change. And no one, we don't like big changes. Things change so much already, we can barely contain it. No, we have to, the government is the only institution because it's sort of, even though, of course, it's, it's a, it's, it is in a way a capitalist institution, it somehow is resistant enough through politics and movements to be a counter to say, no, it doesn't have to change incessantly like our media, social media feeds, like the marketplace. That it can be the only thing, and in fact, can where things change slowly, if at all. And that the, there's an argument made that the government shouldn't change things. It's not put this way. But you, you get the sense of what I'm getting at, I hope. And so it's, 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 it's a victory when, when things don't change in a local government way, that the, law, that the reform wasn't passed, that things did not change. Or if they do, they have to be done in a way where you're not rocking the boat or you're not, you're not making waves or affecting anything else. Sorry, that's what I'm getting to, that you're not affecting anything else. You actually have to... It has to be an improvement that actually doesn't impact anything else. It can only impact the one thing. So it has to be small enough or, my, or a tinker enough, or it has to be just like a little increase in funding. That way there, we can ensure there will be no unintended consequences because that's what really messed up the liberal order. Um, that's what brought an end to the New Deal. There are unintended consequences. Unintended consequences to ending segregation, to ending slavery. They were done too fast. <laughs> it should have been phased in over 50 years, right? Like the just transition, like the Green New Deal. It has to be done over 50 years. It's the only way. If we do it too fast, we'll get basically an industrialist backlash and we'll have to fight a civil war. The only way to avoid civil war is if we take 50 years to do the thing, to end deforestation, to end the exploitation of the earth on a mass scale, to end the sixth mass extinction. It's madness. Let me bring it back to 
local elections. So here's um, the good news from the DSA front. Last week, so this is Jacobin. Sometimes they publish things like I, I read them last week about communist victory, and then they'll, they'll speak of how, you know, what a great socialist victory it is that Democrats were elected, <laughs> but certain types. So here it is. Last week's elections actually gave leftists plenty to cheer by a Bronco Mekarik. From any on the left, last week's elections came like a gut punch. But zoom out beyond the high-profile races cable news pundits fixated on, and Tuesday saw many significant victories for left-wing candidates and policies. Well, yes, they're not fascists. <laughs> but depending on who you ask, if you ask an ML, they're like, um, actually, liberals are fascists. So here it is. The genuinely inspiring India Walton mayoral campaign deservedly got the lion's share of attention leading up to and following last week's elections. Her loss came last week came as a shock. But this intense focus has obscured the significant gains socialists and socialist allied candidates made that day in other cities. 23 out of 33 candidates endorsed by DSA, nationally speaking, that were on the ballot on Tuesday won their elections. So it's 70%. Maybe the biggest win came in the Massachusetts city of Somerville, which is hippie central, by the way. That's it's the city that encompasses Harvard. Where four of Boston's DSA seven-person strong slate for city council won, with Charlotte Kelly and Willie Burley Jr. winning two at-large elections, and J.T. Scott and Ben Edwin Campin securing re-election. It falls short of DSA's ambition to make the country's first socialist majority city but puts the city in a better position to deal with its affordable housing crisis. We'll see. Because unless these are real socialists who are going to build public housing or expropriate landlords to create community ownership, I'm not buying it. I'm thinking it's just going to be Band-Aids. Indian Walton was about um, community land trusts. Something that is of improvement on on obviously capitalist landlord models of providing housing, mass housing, but also have their drawbacks because it's been a, a policy for 40 years uh, on the left to do that. And, and they, they've kind of hit a, a, they are not a complete solution. So the victory of these self-described sidewalk socialists builds on the wave that began in 2017 when our revolution, the organization formed from the ashes of Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign, ran five candidates for the council and endorsed four incumbents, incumbents with all nine winning. That included the other, the Scott and Edwin, Boston DSA members at the time. Socialists took it home elsewhere in Massachusetts, too, with Kendra Hicks winning her campaign for Boston City Council and Quentin Zondervan winning re-election to the Cambridge City Council. Now, I don't want to relate to you, just remind you, DSA is not a party. They're an organization that endorses mostly but always Democrats. They are a wing inside the Democratic Party. They're the left wing for sure, but that's where they're going to be. So they say socialists. They're not running as socialists. They're Democrats who are Berniecrats, or other, and many others call them. So, okay, but here, here's where I, uh, I'll point out, like, okay, how left wing are these? Are these really the good guys? Well, certainly they are in a way. They're comrades. But you see, to me, 
Democratic Socialists, Social Democrats, or the DSA, you know, nationally speaking, okay? Not not my local DSA comrades or whatever, but uh, I, anyway, the, the, there's, an, there's animosity could be gr- tossed out. They certainly are by my other some of my other Green Party uh, friends, my um, mentors. To me, they're the lesser evil. Between corporate Dems and, you know, DSA Dems, they're the lesser evil. They're my lesser evil in a choice between the two. That's if a choice representing my politics is missing, which, of course, I do every, not every possible thing, but I make an effort to alleviate that. Let me give you an example. In Minneapolis, from the article here, all three Twin Cities DSA members running for the 13-member city council, so there's basically only three parts of the city where probably a left-winger lefty could win, but they all won their races. Oh, goody. But who did they beat? Jason Chavez and Niasha Shunatai both handily beat their opponents for open seats, while Robin Wasley, Warbot, beat a sitting Green Party incumbent and narrowly edged out a third opponent who had been endorsed by the Star Tribune, which probably means they were more conservative. But I want you to wrap a head around that. And, they, and they, it's funny, they'll, they'll, they'll make every effort to name the people that they're beating. Uh, sorry, the people who won, right? These are our heroes. The Green Party incumbent was Cam Gordon. Now, I may have, you may have heard his voice if I played, I believe I played uh, a speech or a lecture of his during one of my Green Party conference. It was probably this year's Green Party convention. He's the guy who drafted the legislation to transform Minneapolis police, quote-unquote, abolish the police by creating an office of public safety, thus transforming the role of the police from military force to source of social good, provider of social goods and services. This is the guy who was beaten by a dsa And this is framed as a victory. This is a good thing. Why? Why was this, why was Robin preferable to Cam Gordon? Why did he, why did Cam Gordon have to be challenged? Wasn't there some other council seat that was worth running, you know, a socialist against? But here's where I see DSA strategy. They endorse Dems that will are either expected to win or they're they're in a competitive race. It's very similar to the pattern where public debates will only occur between candidates that are usually major parties or if it's some kind of competitive race. So there's more to read. But I'm going to stop there because that's just that's where my mind just stops. But there's a lot more here. OK, so I, you know, if you want to read about the the successes of you know progressive successive progressives in this week, this uh, last election, uh, if you're feeling down, check it out. It's very positive, very optimistic. But I don't I don't I don't find any comfort in saying we beat a green. That's where I tune out. Because it's Cam Gordon, the guy who was pushing to abolish the police. And you, and, the, and, the, and, the, and that, that's a good thing. 
that he he how he was beaten. He was the incumbent. I I I I just, I just and this happens too much. This happened. This is not the only time this happens. Now sometimes the Green Party person is the more center left. This is this is absolutely the case, and I think this actually occurred in Minneapolis between uh, where you had an actual like socialist candidate who was more left, and then you had Green who was less left. And maybe Cam Gordon isn't identified as a socialist because he's an old school guy. He's an old hippie, and he doesn't and he doesn't have that kind of label on him. I don't care about that. He's a radical in my you know my view. You listen to him. But anyway, but he's not in the org, you know, and that's where it just becomes partisanship, doesn't it? Where's the you know tactical unity? Yeah, right. I only have a little bit left in this hour. So how about we go up to a quick overview of what happened in the Buffalo mayor's race, how socialist India Walton was stopped by Democratic Party establishment and Republicans. This is where it becomes, look, you can run in the machine. And this is what I, I really don't like. It Now, it is a case that it doesn't matter what platform you're in. You know, whether you're third party, independent, or running in a primary. Overall, there's an issue with the, the, with the mindset that we're able to win because turnout's low. Because there's a lower turnout in primaries, that's where we can win. We win the primary, and then it's like automatically we're in and we, we can win the incumbency. We can win the general. Well, this didn't happen to India, Walton. Social, you know, identified socialist. I can call her a socialist. So anyway, here's a quick here's a quick thing that epitomizes that the enemy is the duopoly, and you're not. If you're fighting the duopoly, you need to fight the duopoly on our own terms, not theirs. So anyway, Buffalo. But of course, it, it would it would. The point is whether you are third party or you run in the primary. If you're actually gunning for something like a mayorship or an actual like seat that you're not being appointed to by a Democratic commissioner, <laughs> like uh, like the other guy, you're you're going to get smacked down. It doesn't matter at this stage. It doesn't matter. So that's that. Maybe that's the more cynical like you know f electoral politics uh, or screw electoral politics. Can't do it. No point in doing it. So here's, here's on the one side for that. Buffalo mayoral candidate, India Wall, made history. <laughs> made history, of course. Like, the, the socialists never ran in America before, right? It's not like there was a whole communist party that elected tons of blacks, black people. Um, okay. Uh, he made history in the Democratic primaries in June when she defeated long-serving incumbent Mayor Byron Brown. Uh, for a while, it looked like Walton was on the verge of becoming the first black person, woman, and openly socialist candidate to lead New York's second most populous city. Those hopes were dashed on Tuesday, November 2nd, when Walton was defeated by Brown, who mounted, but not personally mounted, a successful writing campaign in the general election. Now, he was willing to call it quits, actually, and retire, but the party machine and the system was like, no, sir, can't let this happen. Can't let someone who's even mildly left be a mayor of a large city. A nurse who overcame teen motherhood and grew up in poverty, Walton epitomizes resilience. She directed her policy agenda at helping Buffalo's working class, the intelligencer reported. Uh, that's who's reporting this, right? Oh, no, it's Moglik Nation is who I'm reading from. So now Walton, 39, 
Her supporters, fellow progressives, and some political pundits who watched the race unfold are calling foul on how Brown achieved his victory. They accused Brown and the Democratic establishment of railroading Walton by being more willing to make alliances with racist, sexist Republicans than support the nominee city party members voted for. There's nothing to cry foul about. That's exactly how it works. Because it's not about whether you're a Democrat or not. It's the policy that matters. It's who you know. Now, in the case of um, Peters, Mr. Peters, he knew a lot of people, not just the Democratic committeemen, but he said he was elected, well, I think, I don't know, you didn't really lay out the chronology, but I'm going to assume for the sake of argument on his sake, that he was already part of this bail coalition, that there was a lot of people, other people he knew. He had a whole coalition that he was coming from and that made him an attractive pick for the open senator seat. But this is a, this is a long-held, almost mythological strategy of the status quo to take someone from the, from the commoners from the, from the peasants, and put him up on the ruling council. They make him one of their own. But hey, he, he throws a bone. He does things for their benefit. He argues on their behalf in the council, in the elders' council. Anyway, I'm quoting a book that I was reading about. A, it's a memoir of a Harvard law professor who quit his job as a stand for identity politics, and it was... Uh, he feels it was completely wasted. And so his memoir is kind of opining about kind of working on the inside and, and what it meant to be a law professor at Harvard, a black one. He's giving more perspectives to all of the Harvard graduates, but they're still all pretty rich. <laughs> so here, here's what kind of alliance was made. You know, it's a duopoly, stupid. So think of all we had to overcome. The New York State Republican Party leadership went all in against us, and many high-profile Democrats declined to even defend us against them, Walton said in a statement about the election results on November 3rd. Millions of dollars came pouring in to finance attack ads, personal smears, racist, sexist, fear-mongering. Every dirty trick in the book was tried against us. Well, if it succeeds, from draining our resources and legal fees to playing flagrant lies on a loop to Republican poll inspectors pre-stamping ballots. The hostility and aggression against us were ugly and relentless, and in the streets and in the press and on social media. We knew that would be the case when you take on the corrupt and the powerful you can't expect them to play fair. So why did you? Oh, okay. But, hey, high ground, right? Got to keep your principles. While some centrist Democrats dismiss the accusations as sour grapes, there are people outside of Walton's immediate camp that agree with her. When you pull a stunt like this, somebody wins a primary, a working-class woman, and you go to every rich donor in both parties to fund a write-in campaign, it's a disgrace. So Larry Cohen, chair of Bernie Sanders Aligned Group, our revolution. The second time they've come up. Instead of concealing, uh, conceding this after his primary loss, Brown allied himself with Republicans and overt supporters of former President Trump, including real estate developer Carl Palladino, who's come under fire for his racist remarks, according to the New Republic. A little history lesson uh, in the last minute. Palladino actually ran for governor before uh, Trump ran for president. It was like in 2015 uh, or something of that nature. Uh, Palladino ran. He was, Paladino is kind of the Trump of Buffalo. 
He he, made, he did this stunt where he had a bat, and he was like, I'm going to bring the bat to Albany and smash the corruption. But he's just a big, fat, smelly uh, real estate developer. He's, he's like Trump, very much like Trump. In June, Brown said he did not seek, nor I will accept in any form, Paladino's support, but he reversed course for his writing campaign. He also received an infusion of cash from other Republican donors who believed his attack ads. Fact checkers have deemed many of Brown's ads to include lies about India Walton. Republican supporters weren't the only ones working against Walton, according to those who watched the race closely. Uh, let's see, Elizabeth Warren. Yes, Democrats in her own state either endorsed her late in the election or outright refused to do so, even referring to the you know saviors of, Repu- of Dem- uh, Dem- progressive Democrats. Warren, Sanders, AOC, uh, late endorsements or no endorsement. So all the other Democrats didn't endorse her. She might as well have been running as a Green. Which is just kind of, that, that, just, uh, that to me, that just kind of goes a shell. Like, you can play in their game and, uh, and play by their rules, but they're still going to... It's still going to screw you. Okay. So that's it for this hour. Next hour, it's Hawkins time. But it's mostly just his um, well-researched paper over outlining all the different ways we can fix this situation. You probably have some of the pieces already in your head, but I'm going to outlay them all at once uh, for the sake of kind of having a holistic picture. Hello. I'm Cam Gordon. I'm sorry I can't be with you today, but I just wanted to send you a message of support and goodwill from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I've been serving on the Minneapolis City Council now for the past 14 years, representing the Green Party in our city government. And I just want you to know that getting organized at the local level, running for office, and getting elected can make a big difference in your community. It's really important, the work that we're doing. When I ran back in 2005, I ran on the four pillars of the Green Party, and I've ever since been using those in office to help guide governance, and I think we've made a big difference. We've actually had Greens on the Minneapolis City Council since 2001, and in the Park Board, which is also elected here in Minneapolis since 2001. And by using our values of social and economic justice, grassroots democracy, nonviolence and ecological wisdom, we've shown that we can make this a better city for everybody. I've tried to look through the lens of those values for every decision that I make in City Hall. Uh, And we've seen enormous progress because it turns out those values are popular, popular with the voters that I represent and with the people in the city. And so then other elected officials latch onto those. Using um, the value of grassroots democracy, we've been able to make ranked choice voting uh, the way we elect our city government here in the city of Minneapolis, and that includes at-large seats for the park board that are elected proportionally. And we've done that successfully year after year and opened up our system here. Um, using social and economic justice to guide us, we've been able to raise the minimum wage here in the city of Minneapolis, and we've also established a racial equity action plan trying to address what are some of the worst disparities uh, in, the, in any city in the country um, in racial disparities that we have in the city of Minneapolis. Um, it wasn't easy, but we did that work. Using nonviolence, we were able to create a division of violence prevention. We've been able to move programs forward, um, working uh, through hospitals, um, co-responders in our police department, um, so that we can address uh, the issue of uh, violence from a public health perspective, which has been key and which has been very, very, very important. 
and using the value of ecological wisdom, we created a, a very strong climate action plan in our city. We now have a clean energy partnership with our utility companies after a failed effort to take over uh, them, uh, but that's still something that could be done in the future. But we also were able to de develop a green zones program so that we can bring uh, resources to the communities that need them most who've been subjected to environmental injustice for decades in the city of Minneapolis. And we have now have clean energy go to phase out of the use of fossil fuels in our city and it, people are latching on to those ideas and they're becoming more and more popular. I also wanted to talk about one of the biggest struggles that we're in right now in Minneapolis and I'm sure people have heard about the focal point with the police murder of George Floyd, uh, that tragic death and then everything in it has resulted. Um, we have a new opportunity in our city and we're looking at what we can do to change significantly from top to bottom and transform our even the way we approach uh, community safety, public safety, uh, and policing in the city of Minneapolis. We're moving forward now with a charter amendment uh, that we've, we've tried charter amendments in the past but to deal with this problem, but now I think we have the best hope where we will actually remove the police department from our charter and replace it with a Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention. Uh, we're going to work hard at developing police oversight mechanisms in the meantime uh, while we push that charter amendment forward onto the ballot. We passed a historic resolution, I think unanimously by the City Council, saying we're going to engage in a year-long community process where we're going to help everybody reimagine what public safety could be like and we're going to listen to one another so we can understand, well some people might think the system of paramilitary policing that we've had so far works for them, it doesn't work for everybody in our city and it has resulted uh, in tragedy time and time again in the city of Minneapolis. In order for us to do that, though, we're really going to need the help of everybody, everybody in the city and also voices from outside the city to help guide us in this new direction. I believe that Minneapolis has an opportunity to be a model for other cities and into the future about how we can rethink, redo, recreate, and rebuild public safety, uh, destroy the institutionalized racism that is in our criminal justice system, certainly at the city level, and we can offer a new pathway forward.
Okay, we're back into the second hour. Yeah, so basically left off there the right thing. So let's go through what the election results for the Greens were like. Just a quick little for your own knowledge. Uh, there were 17 victories, 17 Greens were elected. That brings up the total since 1985 to uh, 1,289 elected Greens. They were mostly all in the Northeast, uh, where we actually kind of have our quote-unquote, you know, most active uh, state parties, or at least the most left-wing ones. There was one um, person in Michigan who won, but most others were northeast. With two major victories, at least city council seats, being in Portland, Maine. Oh, and the other one, oh, sorry, one was in Portland, and the other one was Lewiston, which is the second largest city in Maine. This is because, I think statewide, I don't know if it goes local, they have ranked choice ballots. So it helps. It helps. Uh, another was a uh, town board in Langston, New York, some school boards, some board of appeals, and judge of elections, which I guess is their version of, uh, yeah, it's uh, in Pittsburgh, um, and another in Reading, Pennsylvania. So I guess in Pennsylvania... I guess they, they don't have a centralized board of elections that, you know, determines the official. They actually have elected people that judge the election who are auditors, perhaps. I I don't know. It's Pennsylvania is one of those states that were just amazingly difficult to have a good presidential count. But that could be why uh, inspired some Greens to run for these seats. So they weren't just stacked with duopoly stooges and party machine hacks. So... Let's get into the brass text, and probably for the whole hour. Uh, the paper, long-form article, published by Counterpunch, probably the only place that will publish Howie Hawkins in full. Former Green Party, well, current last Green Party presidential candidate that nobody knew about. because Nobody wanted people to know about him, even those on the quote-unquote left. But then it's like, then it makes me very suspect, because it's like, well, they want Democrats to win, apparently. Because Democrats are the lesser evil. Never mind what we actually want to fight for. Never mind what we could be building. No, we got to help Democrats. We got to be Democrats. And yet, what do Democratic Party politics get us? I see nothing but a complete repetition from 10 years ago. You might be too young to know, or you might be old and need reminding. But this is exactly what happened a decade ago when I got into politics. That's why I got into politics. I saw what is happening now happening when Obama was elected. That you have centrist Democrats that stop any actual substantive reform or spending bill being passed, any actual social change to be enacted. Democrats are weak and effectual and purposely win the lose. Their strategy is to do poorly or do capitalist policy, do the bidding of capitalism, which is, of course, unpopular. Then Republicans get elected continue, they govern for the sake of capitalists and other more local capitalists, which makes them unpopular. And then and so it goes. And each time, it is not all different, the number of voters goes down, especially when it comes to uh, non-presidential elections. But even I think those uh, next time around will be lower than ever. You know, when it's Trump wannabe 2.0 versus Kamala Harris. No one will care. But enough 
misants will care enough about being electing the lesser evil to ensure that no alternative can ever actually be uh, promoted. That's my cynical uh, view. I want it to be different. I encourage everyone to think differently. So from Howie Hawkins, voting rights should include the right to vote for who you want. It seems like a simple statement, right? But amazingly, I've heard it argued to my face, at least indirectly, that uh, it's better to have the right to vote for the mainstream Democrat. That's, we want the right to vote for them, not anyone else. Because fully, Greens and others could be doing so much better. Independent socialists could be doing so much better if we were actually allowed to campaign on a fair playing field, which we are not. Things are not level in the slightest. Voting rights are not fully realized if they are only about getting into the polling booth to cast a vote. Voting rights are also about the right to vote for who you want once you get to vote. Otherwise, we will still have the kind of electoral system that has prevailed since Boss Tweed and Tammany Paul touted who he doesn't care who does the electing, so long as I get to do the nominating. That prevailing system is single-member district winner-take-all elections. That's what we need to call it. That's a name for it. It's not just our election system, right? Because if, if, if all you know is America, and America is the best democracy like ever, you can't imagine that there could be anything else. You don't need to define what we have. But I will do so because it is not the best. We have single-member district winner-take-all elections. The voters for the plurality winner get all the representation and every other political viewpoint, political and ethnic minorities, the major party that is a minority in the particular district gets no representation. So without proportional representation, most voters don't have representatives in office from their districts who represent them. Most districts are effectively uncompetitive one-party districts, knowing their votes won't change who represents them because the winner is baked in. The non-voters are the biggest block of voters most elections. Single-member plurality voting is a system of exclusion, not inclusive democracy. Comrade Canyon from the local Socialist Party chapter made uh, two particular posts after Election Day. One was about the Albany-New York election, and the other was about the Syracuse election, listing off the stats, particularly of the turnout, that the winner basically won with 8% of the uh, possible registered party, uh, registered voter turnout, or uh, every potential voter. But it's 8% vote. You know, 8% is all it takes to win. That's that's our democracy in action. That's what it took to win. And, 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 and no, there's no actual legal force that can say otherwise. Like, if you don't get more than 50% turnout, the election should be thrown out. It, sh- it could be challenged in court as illegitimate. But that's not in, in any constitution in America. Some free country, right? So, continuing. There's a lot here. Um, the first third of it is kind of a... What did I write as a going through the, uh, the the problem and kind of how the Democrats self-own, their use of the filibuster, so I'll get to that. For all the provisions in this massive, in the massive 800-page For the People Act, none of them addressed, and he's referring to a particular election reform bill in Congress, 
None of it addresses the nature of single-member district winner-take-all elections, nor did it any address the exclusionary nature of highly restrictive ballot access requirements. While the bill did have important provisions for voter access to the ballot and campaign finance disclosure, the bill is now probably dead in this session of Congress. The Republicans defeated it on June 22nd by their filibuster of a motion to debate. So now the bill returns to its status as a Democratic Party messaging bill, as it has really been since it passed the House in 2019 when the Senate was still under Republican control. So it is a good time to expand the voting rights and pro-democracy agenda. This is because like any actual form that would happen on the national level is completely stillborn. So there's no, like, the political discussion isn't, we have to vote for this garbage bill because it's the lesser evil. Now it's time to organize an alternative. Democrats lose negotiations with themselves. Despite the June 22nd statements from Biden, Harris, Schumer, and Klobuchar, that they will keep fighting, that they are really fighting for its messaging in the 2022 midterm elections, they may try to amplify the message by setting up the John Lewis Voting Rights Act for a similar defeat by Republican filibuster in the coming month. But they really have no path forward to passing these bills before the midterms because the Democrats are unable to end or modify the filibuster. Probably heard this discussion before about the filibuster and how, and, and you'll have even progressive voices saying, hey, if we get rid of the filibuster, then the Republicans won't have to do They won't have it either. <laughs> we can't use it against them. Well, if, you're, if Democrats are actually able to pass the people's agenda, they won't have to worry about Republicans having a majority again. If you actually expressed your power, used it to reform things, they would never have power again, not in the same way. They wouldn't have no majority. But of course, what kind of power usage are we talking about? The radical kind, the revolutionary kind, the kind that we will, uh, how we will cover, but Democrats will never do. So um, anyway, Republicans are using the filibuster as their openly white supremacist forebears used it to undermine voting rights for black people. They are echoing racist states' rights sloganeering going back to pro-slavery John Calhoun and all his segregationist Dixiecrat descendants, even though the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution, that's Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, plainly gives Congress the right to regulate federal elections administered by the states. Democrats can't blame the Republicans because they are far from united against the filibuster themselves. At any time, they could use their 51 votes, 50 Democratic senators, plus the tiebreaker, Vice President Harris, to repeal the cloture rule that enables the filibuster. But they could have suspended the cloture rule just for the For the People Act, 22nd, in order to move the floor in a final vote. It is not just Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema who are stopping filibuster reform on the Democratic side. These two senators are fronting publicly for the dozen or so Democratic senators who quietly support the filibuster, including, in names, August King of Maine, Maggie Hansen, Janine Shaheen of New Hampshire, Pat Leahy of Vermont, Jack Reed of Rhode Island, Thomas Carper and Christopher Coons of Delaware, Mark Warner of Virginia, John Tester of Montana, Mark Kelly of Arizona, Diane Feinstein of California. The filibuster means the whole agenda of liberal reforms the Democrats nominally support are likely dead in this session or pretty much any session of Congress, including D.C. statehood, the DREAM Act, John Floyd Justice and Policing Act, the Public Option, universal background checks, 
Equality Act to include sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity as a protected class under civil rights. Under the Civil Rights Act. The Democrats will have to run in 2022 not on what they accomplished, but on what the Republicans stopped them from doing. Sound familiar? This is exactly what 2012 was. But on what the... Oh, not, not 2012, 2010. It's what 2010 was. But again, but, but that I think... Yeah, it could be any year, really. It could be 2012. It could be 2016. Like, hey, we're running on what Republicans stopped us from doing. And then when they have some majority, oh, look at that. There's these two moderate senators, Cinema and Manchin, and they don't. We got to negotiate with them, guys. Good luck with that, particularly as pundits note that the Democrats failed in their negotiations with themselves on the filibuster before they ever, ever got to Republican obstructions. Now, while the feckless Democrats negotiate with themselves on whether to repeal peel, or modify the filibusters to secure voting rights, Republicans are moving full speed ahead in the states to rig elections in their favor. If no voting rights legislation passes by Labor Day, it will be too late to impact the 2022 midterms. Well, I guess there will be no impact. And in history, quote-unquote, will repeat. 2022 will be probably exactly like 2010. With only four weeks scheduled for Senate business between the 4th and August recesses, and with infrastructure, the debt ceiling, budget appropriations bill at the top of the agenda, yeah, on and on and on and on, right? Make your head spin when, and see for rage. And my show is, uh, I'm not really here to do that, even though I'm kind of doing it myself. Most dangerous of all, the Republicans are passing laws to take the final say on vote counting and election certification away from independently elected secretaries of state or maybe bipartisan or nonpartisan county and state boards, though they certainly aren't in uh, New York, uh, but to give it to partisan state legislators. Uh, in other words, the Republicans are setting up the structure to steal elections in the states they control. This control will impact not only state elections for state and federal office, but also the 2024 presidential election where Republican House and Senate members could steal the presidency by refusing to accept the results from some states the Democrat wins. Uh, the U.S. has been through this authoritarian scenario before when the racist party, when the Democratic Party, campaigning on the slogan of white supremacy, brazenly stole elections during and after Reconstruction with violence and obsessively race-neutral laws like poll taxes and literacy tests to get around the 15th Amendment prohibition of racial discrimination in voting. Now, that was after the Civil War. So... Uh, and so if, if we're drawing some historical parallel, the this is going to just keep going. And let's see. What happened after the Reconstruction era was you have populist movements, sort of third-party runs, but they weren't really cohesive at all. Sound familiar? Doesn't bode well at all. But things are not, things do not and will not repeat exactly. It rhymes, though. Tracking by the Bryan Center for Justice is documenting the aggressive, the scale and scope of today's Republican-sponsored voter suppression laws in states as well. As how Hawkins has said over and over, Republicans do voter suppression, Democrats do party suppression. Toward the end of the Reconstruction era, something very significant happened. That is what is known as the populist movement. The leaders of this movement began awakening the poor white masses and the former Negro slaves to the fact that they were being fleeced by the emergency bourbon interests. Not only that, 
but they were being unite but they began uniting black and white masses into a voting bloc that threatened to drive the bourbon interests from the command post of political power in the South. To meet this threat, the Southern aristocracy began immediately to engineer this development of a segregated society, and thus the building of statues to cement the their ideological. Uh, it's called the nadir of uh, of black rights. Thus, the threat of the free exercise of the ballot by the Negro, well, he's the Negro, black people, and white masses alike, resulted in the establishment of a segregated society. They segregated Southern money from the poor whites. They segregated Southern moors from the rich whites. They segregated Southern churches from Christianity. They segregated Southern minds from honest thinking. And they segregated blacks from everything. That's what happened when the black and white masses of the South threatened to unite and build a better society. What today most prevents the kind of class-based multiracial movement that the populists tried to build is the exclusionary winner-take-all electoral system. Most progressive policies have majoritarian support, but they do not translate into public policy because the winner-take-all electoral system denies most people representatives who actually support those policies. Republican voter suppression and election tampering make the problem worse. But the voting rights agenda must be expanded from voter access which is currently is where things are progressing, you know, on the state front. Although, actually, the things that would have progressed things on the New York state front actually lost a ballot because they were ballot measures, and only Republicans seemed to have the money to run campaign ads against them. Democrats and unions do not seem to want these things to pass because they, or they just assume they would, and they didn't, mobilize a campaign for them. So in various counties, people were left very confused about them because, you know, Republican campaign ads are just lies and diffusion. Anyway, um, see, uh, I made a Facebook post or, or it's actually on YouTube. I uh, took my YouTube channel for my live stream where I explained the New York state ballot initiatives. Uh, expand voting rights in the pro Okay, so that's a little history lesson, and uh, a little and, and kind of what's the problem, especially when it comes to electoral politics. Let's put aside all anarchistic arguments against electioneering altogether. I did a whole episode on that now two years ago, three years ago. I think I just called it "Our Elections Worth It." Uh, check out that one if you just want the entire counter-argument to all of this. But it's not an argument. None of this is an argument for electioneering and voting. It's actually an argument. Everything I've been talking about this time is more the argument that none of it is worth doing until we first build a kind of democracy movement to make the elections worth doing. But many lefties or enough lefties or at least like you know it's kind of dominant almost that it's not worth doing even if it were fixed it's not worth doing it's worth doing this other stuff only you know unionization or whatever like you can unionize all you want unless you're able to take government power the military is going to come in and break your strike that's what happened in the 20s you had certain progressives elected to office but at the time, no socialists. And by the time there were socialists elected, the union movement had already, for the most part, sold out. There was a labor aristocracy. 
there were union bosses and it was entrenched power itself and it wasn't militant anymore. So the militant groups were left to get picked off by the Red Scare and unions kicked the Reds out, as it were. And then suddenly things went awry for workers. How could predict that? So anyway, here is the laundry list, the shopping list, shopping list. Expand the voting rights and pro-democracy agenda. The agenda, democracy agenda. Voters are denied the right to vote for representatives of their own choosing by seven features of the prevailing U.S. electoral system. So this is actually the, the, the list of problems. The absence of a right to vote in the Constitution. It may surprise you to know that, yes, there is no right to vote in the U.S. Constitution. There is an absence of a right to nonpartisan vote counting. That's something that has to be you know, done on a local or state level. It's there, but it's not a guaranteed right. That means it can be rolled back. Unreasonably difficult ballot access for independent candidates and any other minor party. Winner-take-all plurality elections that deny representation to all political viewpoints except a plurality. Of course, considering it's 8% of plurality. Uh, not, in, not in certain local races, I can tell you. Uh, the U.S. Senate that does represent people equally on the basis of one person, one vote. The Electoral College that has elected 19 presidents with less than a majority of the popular vote, including five who lost it. Legalized bribery of private campaign financing. Thus, a voter rights and pro-democracy agenda would include a right to vote in the Constitution, nonpartisan vote counting, fair ballot access, proportional representation, abolition of the Senate, abolition of the Electoral College, presidential elections by majority, pop vote, and public financing of elections, dying. And for the People Act, the For the People Act incorporated many previously introduced Democratic election reform bills into one omnibus one. That means it was big ugly. But it still did not address any of these rights, except the public financing question. While supporting the voting rights, campaign finance disclosure, and ethic reforms for the For the People Act, twice took to these pages to warn that the public campaign matching funds reform it proposed actually preserves the domination of private campaign financing by the ultra-rich, effectively excludes third-party candidates from public financing. It magnifies the funding disparities between lower and higher-funded candidates who do qualify for public matching funds. This is what we're referring to matching funds here. Here are my arguments so that the voting rights and pro-democracy agenda must be expanded so people have the opportunity to vote for who they want once they get their ballots. So let's go through each one of these in depth. <clears throat> the right to vote in the Constitution. Before we can ensure people have the right to vote for who they want, we have to ensure that they have a right to cast one in the first place. While the U.S. Constitution bans voting discrimination based on race, sex, and age, except it bans voting under age 18, so, okay. But it does not state that all U.S. citizens have a right to vote. Thus, the Supreme Court infamously ruled in Bush v. Gore in 2000 that, quote, the individual citizen 
has no federal constitutional right to vote. Dot, dot, dot. Shocking, right? Oh, it was all Nader. Nader's fault. It's Nader's fault. The voting rights movement should therefore support the proposed right to vote amendment, which will empower Congress to implement by legislation and require the courts to enforce individual citizens' right to vote. It will strengthen the legal grounds for enforcement of federal election standards like those proposed in the For the People Act because it establishes that voting is in fact a right, not merely a privilege granted or not by the states. Next is nonpartisan vote counting. So at least 216 bills in 41 states have been introduced by Republicans to give legislators power over elections officials. 24 have already, the real coup, but really, it's, it's all legal, it's all legit. There's no law saying they can't do any of this. And that's why I could be classified as anti-American. I'm not really for these laws. I want the laws to be better. I want more amendments. I want a new constitution. Anyway, 24 have already been enacted in the law across 14 states. Purge of black and Democratic election officials has already begun in Georgia, along with an attempted purge of 364,000 voters from the rolls. On June 25th, the Justice Department announced it was suing Georgia against its new voting law under the Voting Rights Act. With the Voting Rights Act gutted by the 2013 Shelby County versus Holder decision that eliminated the Section 5 plea clearance provision that requires the Justice Department approval to changes in election law in states with a history of race-based voting, this lawsuit aims to prove racial discriminatory intent as well as effect under Section 2. Since it will likely take years for this case to be adjudicated, you know, go for the courts, the restrictive Georgia laws will remain in effect at least through the 2022 midterms. And the damage will be done. A New York Times editorial, Congress needs to defend vote counting, not just vote casting noted on June 4th that the For the People Act does not address the problem that Republican-controlled state legislators are whittling away at the integrity of electoral democracy in the U.S., rushing to pass laws that make it harder for Americans to vote and easier for partisans to tamper with election results. The integrity of a system where only 8% can determine who the winner is and who the government is. So... Having integrity isn't the same as having legitimacy. It should also clarify its own role in certifying the results of presidential elections to prevent the possibility that a future Congress would overturn a state's popular vote. Congressional legislation that prevents partisan election tampering by requiring independent, nonpartisan vote counting and certifying needs to be high on the pro-democracy agenda. But of course, it's hard to get people to care about all this when they were getting evicted and there's bread and potato type of issues. You know, day-to-day job and life quality stuff. Uh, sidewalk socialism. Sidewalk socialism. What is that? I know that's referring to. It's referring to the fact that they're just, they're canvassing. Oh, oh my, wow, canvassing. Never would have thought. That's, that's where real socialism starts. Canvassing. I, I, I only say that with... That's actually, that's sarcastic sarcasm there. Ironic sarcasm. I'm not really being sarcastic. I do believe that. It's, it's just the joke of like saying like that, that's, you know, 
different. It's like what sets them apart is that they canvass, as opposed to the socialists that don't canvass, which I guess there are enough of. Damn, damn it. <laughs> Fair ballot access. Denying the candidates of opposition political parties the right to be on the ballot is a mark of air autocracies. By that standard, the U.S. is a two-party autocracy due to its onerous ballot access requirements. That's the way I do view the U.S. It's not, not even a republic to me, okay? Not even a republic. Or if it is, I mean republic as far as the plutocratic one. It's ruled by the rich. The autocracy. Candidates and political parties should have reasonable access to ballots. Voters should have all political alternatives on their ballots. This is where we get into like things I've ranted and talked about in other contexts and other episodes, and with uh, when I talk other on other people's shows, I usually you know because they ask me, "Oh, you ran for office," and then I start talking about ballot access because that is if I don't run for office next year and the year after that, it's because we don't have ballot access, and it's like, well, now I have to run as a dem or whatever, but I'm not going to do that, just not. Because that would be giving up to me. Okay, so fair ballot access should be realized for federal elections by enacting a Fair Elections Act similar to that introduced by Representative John Connors from the late 80s until the 101st Congress in 99. Connors' bill sets reasonable maximum standards for ballot access in federal elections that are far lower than those that prevail in most states today. Here is what we should or could have and he'll talk and he'll list all the ways of what we what we have now because you probably may not likely be aware of just how bad it is why it is so necessary why third parties are so stillborn such a lost cause not worth doing totally never going to win they never explain why because they're working off of really to me lame logic or like thought processes of like well it's just that they're not popular or they're they don't have it's not like we can't do anything that a Democrat running in a primary doesn't face, but we face on top of all of that, we can't, the, the onerousness of getting on the ballot in the first place. So that's kind of the major difference. But once we do have ballot access, we are just as good, no difference really, structurally speaking, than running in a Democratic primary, which is why I was always incensed when, it, when we had ballot access that you had all these people still saying, no, we have to be den, en- den enter. It'll get into, you know, why I see that as a betrayal of sorts. Definitely not any kind of left unity. So the candidate maximum petition signature requirement in Connor's bill was a thousand. And that's for federal office. And it should be. That should be the, the, the height, a thousand. Or signatures of 0.1% of votes for the office in the previous election, whichever is greater. A collection period between 270 and 60 days before the election, which is a much longer amount of time. Now the collection period is like 40 days at most. Sometimes I think of it as like a month, but it's more like a month and a half, month and two weeks. And you're supposed to collect not a thousand signatures, but 10,000 signatures. Applying the candidate petition maximum to the average House vote in 2020 of about 350,000, a petition of 0.1% of those votes, voters, would be 350 signatures, which means that in most House districts, 
the 1,000 signature maximum would apply. Applying the party vote threshold to the presidential vote, vote votes in 2020, a party would qualify for the state's ballot in about half the states with 20,000 votes and less than that in other states. These are far lower ballot access thresholds than now prevail in most states. Without this kind of fair ballot access legislation from federal, for federal elections, independent and minor party candidates will remain systematically excluded from ballots in federal elections by petitioning requirements that are far more onerous in the U.S. than in almost every other electoral democracy in the world. For example, and this is where I get really, really, really pissed. Or I start to cry. Whatever comes first. To run as an independent for the House of Commons in the UK, it takes 10 signatures. It takes 10 signatures for the Lok Shabha, India's lower house of parliament. In New Zealand, it takes two signatures to run as an independent for its Umarkarmel, that means one house parliament. It takes 50 for Australia's house of reps, 100 for Canada's, or 50 in the more rural ones. For Germany's parliament, the Bundtag, it takes 200 signatures to run as an independent. But to run as an independent or new party candidate for the House of Reps, House of Reppin in the U.S., it takes thousands or tens of thousands of petition signatures in most states to get placed on the ballot. In California, it takes 2,000. And, and by the way, he's going from lowest to highest. 2,000 is the lowest. It's 3,500 in New York, 5,000 in Ohio, 7,500 in North Carolina. It's only going higher, folks. 10,400 in Florida, over 15,000 in Arizona and Illinois, over 20,000 in Georgia and Oklahoma, over 30,000 in Alabama, and over 40,000 in Indiana. This is probably magnitudes more they will actually vote for Congress, for the congressman, congressperson. To run for president as an independent or new party candidate or a third party candidate, it takes over 860,000 signatures that have to be submitted through a gauntlet of 50 states as well as D.C., each with their own requirements for petition forms, for who counts as a qualified circulator and signer starting. They have their own different starting and finishing deadlines, different filing fees, and more. In the absence of a federal fair ballot access law, third parties are fighting the major parties for ballot state by state in the legislature and the courts. Richard Winger's ballot access news is indispensable for following these ballot access fights. The Democrats have been t have taken aim at the Green Party in New York and Nevada. And the law is a, so here's where I it's like okay, well, Dan, why don't you why are you more raw raw for the DSA? Why why aren't the Greens and the DSA friendly? Why aren't they collaborating? They're, they're both electoral groups endorsing candidates and such. Well, I I explained in the first hour that like they ran against Cam Gordon in Minneapolis and beat a Green. And, they, and that's a good thing. Uh, and, this, and that happens. It's not the first time that's happened. Here's, here's, here's where it's like, 
this is where it's like it doesn't feel like we're on the same side so as far as like social policy and and uh, the actual you know the, the platform. It's 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 very similar. It's it's almost the same. You know, we're comrades, anti-capitalist. You know, and the system, fight the system. But when it comes to strategy, it's we're enemies. Let me go into why. At least in New York, the Democrats have taken aim at the Green Party in New York and Nevada. In a law attached to the state budget during the COVID lockdown in 2020, New York Democrats tripled the vote required to maintain ballot status and tripled the signatures required to get back on the ballot. It was high before. The Green Party came up short on votes in 2020. No surprise there, right? Uh, Even though we didn't do too... Well, if they hadn't been raised, we, we would have had enough. I want to say that much. So now we will have to collect 45,000, and I say we because I'm including myself, we'll have to collect 45,000 signatures in 42 days next year to get back on the ballot. And that's just to run uh, a a gubernatorial candidate, and they have to get uh, 150,000 votes to then get four-year ballot access because it's not permanent. It's not even permanent. You know, in other countries, it would be for decades. You know, it would be like, oh, now you're a party for X amount of years. You know, no, it's just for the next cycle until the next governor election. Then you have to do it all over again. Because it's just assumed that you're going to be popular enough to keep meeting the threshold. And for three terms, three cycles, we did. With Hawkins as our candidate. Um, so anyway... Continuing. One of the most difficult standards in the nation. That's in New York. In Nevada last month, the Democrats rammed through... Again, I want to repeat. This is the Democrats doing this. Okay? They rammed through a new law to increase ballot petitioning requirements on a party-line vote. As Richard Winger notes in his June issue of Battle Access News, the true motive for the bill is to block the Green Party from getting back on the ballot. It is a sad commentary on progressive Democrats that the Nevada members of the DSA won the leadership positions of the Nevada Democratic Party in March. So they succeeded. The Bernie Kratz won. They took over the Democrats in Nevada. But they raised no objection last month as the former state chair they defeated, Senator Roberta Lang, ushered through the restrictive ballot access bill on behalf of the old Harry Reid machine. In New York, none of the much publicized Democratic Socialists in the New York legislature did anything to reverse New York's new ballot access restrictions. And it doesn't, doesn't restrict them, right? It doesn't restrict the Dem-enter strategy. Party suppression is a form of voter suppression. The Green Party brings out new voters. 61% of Jill Stein voters would not have voted in 2016 if she had not been on the ballot. Any Democratic left worthy of the name would support fair ballot access. It is time for the Democratic left and the voting rights movement to demand that progressives in Congress introduce federal fair ballot access legislation, build a movement to enact it. Now, when it comes to local DSA chapters, I don't malign them for this because they got their, they're working on local issues just as I am, just as we all are. They're, could say, distracted. It's low priority. And that's what that's their their only defense is that uh, fighting against what the party machine does 
uh, is just too much. They can't fight every battle. It's like the Democratic senator in, in Illinois said, Mr. Peters. He can't fight every battle. True. So that's that's on the other hand. You know, I'm not, I don't want to paint the essayers as villains here. But I'm just saying that the Democrats basically are making it illegal, pretty much illegal, to run as a third party. And and there's just, we get a collective shrug from our quote unquote, from our comrades. Sorry, I won't say quote unquote comrades. They're comrades, but. They have their strategy, and uh, it it doesn't really um, behoove them to stick their neck out for ours, because they're they're inside now. But I did have a little piece here about, um, but basically the DSA, the Democratic Socialists that are in the New York Legislature, they know how messed up it is. They find that they aren't able to do very much because of how corrupt everything is. And their their only outlet is to say we need more of us here. But I think there there's a wall that you'll hit. There there are only so many districts in in the Queens and Brooklyn where you can elect a DSA as a Democrat. Uh, at least what I, that's what I see. If they can do it in Newburgh and New Pulse and Troy, uh, maybe, but uh, I doubt it. They're not even endorsing anyone. There there isn't even a progressive challenger in a lot of these races. They're still working on local level stuff. I get it. It's next time. It's next cycle. Um, that's what I, that's what I'm seeing. And they're it's not they're not DSA can people. They're 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 endorsed people. But whatever. They they are activists of of a type, um, labor, so on. You know, they're they're allies. There's something building, slowly but surely. That that I kind of covered with the with the Jacobin article. They're making some headway of sorts. So anyway, um, next piece on the laundry list, on the on the shopping list. Over 90% of U.S. House districts, so this is now talking about proportional representation, the thing that I would really most want to fight for. Over 90% of U.S. House districts and over 95% of state legislative districts are uncompetitive one party. Talking about gerrymandering, it takes advantage of single-member winner-take-all districts to create districts that are even more safe for incumbents. So instead of just fighting gerrymandering and saying, oh, we just have to fix gerrymandering. No, gerrymandering is only a problem because it's a single member district. It's one person for the whole district. For 50,000 people, one person. I hate it. And it creates all these other problems, all these other potential ways of, of, uh, of uh, gaming it. And we don't have to worry about gerrymandering if we fix the way the districts are, they exist. And we don't have to worry about police accountability if we abolish the police as they are. So anyway, most politicians don't earn their seats. They inherit them. As a result, tens of millions of Americans are perpetually represented by politicians they oppose with no hope of changing their representation by voting. The remedy is proportional representation. Under this, each political viewpoint gets its fair share of reps that is proportional to the vote it receives. If a political viewpoint has 20% of support among voters, it gets 20% of reps in the legislative body. Now, the only possible argument against this, against having more democracy, proportional representation, which, by the way, I, I discount immediately, but I, just for the sake of it, I'll mention it. That's like, well, you know, sure, maybe far-left people could be elected, but so will neo-Nazis. So will far-right people. 
It'll be like the New Hampshire legislature. And I say, fine. Fine. Then we get to debate them in the halls of government instead of in the streets. And people get to see them for who they are. And we actually get to see the representation that exists for this particular viewpoint. And you can be horrified and then think, or like, oh, we need the we need the the moderating force of the duopoly, you know, or or else we'll have all these extremist forces. Well, I want to point out that politics in Europe has a lot of proportional representation, and you may notice that that there are still two large parties that are center left and center right, but there's also all of the other quote unquote more fringe or marginal parties that they need to form coalitions with, and so their viewpoint actually gets in the agenda a little bit more. It's it's better. It's not great. It's not anarchy, but it's better. <laughs> but better. I mean, it's a, by anarchy, I mean direct democracy. And and that's where it becomes like a, a choice of like, okay, we can build a, this movement to fix electoral democracy, or we can build a movement for participatory democracy, for completely ignoring electioneering and building our um, local assemblies with union power, and they become the you know alternative government. Now, but what I like about that decision is that I don't see those two strategies as being exclusive or eventually being enemies of each other. We're doing one cancels the other out, which is what I see with insider Democrat interest stuff versus third party stuff cancel each other out. At least what I see is Dem enter Dems. You know, DSAers, Democratic Socialists, they, they get elected and their success cancels out any potential for independent po- uh, electoral politics. Because it all, it all, either the energy goes with them or because it's there, the status quo, the actual party machine gets to ban third parties and, or, or restrict voting access. And there's really nothing they can do about it because they're fighting their own fights inside the party. But it's just crazy that Nevada, the Berniecrats have the, they actually took over the party apparatus and they still, still didn't lift a finger. And I was reading about their ascendancy to the, to doing that, to their, when they were setting out to do that. And I was shaking my head then. I'm like, I don't know if this is going to be, have a good outcome now for, not just for being a third party person, but just, is, will this lead to progressive politics in Nevada, Nevada? Green New Deal in Nevada? Okay. So the right to fair and proportional representation in the House of Reps can be realized by enacting a Fair Representation Act, a bill that requires the members of the House be elected by a ranked choice voting system and proportional reps based on multi-member districts. So that's, this, that's the real shift from going to a single rep district to having multiple reps, to having... You have your congressional district, and there's multiple people that are representing it. it means that yes, you're you're expanding the amount of people in Congress. That's a good thing. With ranked choice proportional representation, no votes are wasted on losers if the voters' choices are fully ranked. That means like there's a you know a threshold. Every vote counts toward electing a fair share of representation for one's viewpoint. Thus, gerrymandering is eliminated. Redistricting can game single-member winner to take all district lines, but not for multi-member districts using ranked choice voting because every viewpoint gets its proportional share. You can repeat that a lot, I guess. 
go through uh, ranked choice voting. I'm sure you might be aware of that. Um, there's a, it gives another history point of view that it was this was done during the Progressive Era in 24 American cities, including Boulder, Cambridge, Cincinnati, Cleveland, New York City, Sacramento, Toledo, Worcester, and Yonkers. By giving political and ethnic minorities their fair and proportional share of representation, this type of voting created multi-party, multi-racial, municipal democracies. What happened to them? Well, they were repealed systematically during the McCarthy era. With its anti-communist crusade against the election of independent labor, socialist, and communist candidates, and a white backlash against the election of black candidates in a post-war civil rights movement, this is while it was rising, RV's TV is now enjoying a revival. 51 local jurisdictions in two states, including Alaska and Maine, have adopted, 51 local jurisdictions have adopted at least ranked choice voting, and there are ranked choice voting campaigns in almost every state. But it doesn't include the proportional representation. That's like the next thing, which I don't like, but it's, it's, the point is to join these movements and, and make sure that it's in the list of demands. Okay, so the last two things is abolishing the Senate and abolishing Electoral College. I think you've heard arguments for that every election day or every time there's a presidential election, so I don't need to go into that. I hope you're, I, um, I believe you're an educated, well-informed person who's reasonably attentive uh, to social media <laughs> some of the time. So otherwise... Reach the end of the show. My profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories or topics you'd like to hear discussed. Send social media, Facebook. Uh, send any of this feedback or even just a message, which I received one, by the way, so thank you. Um, but I did get a well-wishing message, and I love it. And, and she sent me a piece of music that slaps. And I'll um, incorporate it into my uh, log of uh, music tracks I use eventually. And then I also met a listener um, at the uh, Climate March uh, Saturday. She thought I only did this show once a month, but I didn't follow up with the question of uh, where are you listening it, to it. But I gave her my card so she can go to the website where she will find Full archive of the show, uh, going up to mostly uh, until you get to the last 10 episodes, where you'll find on any uh, circulating podcast app, whether it be Google Play, Stitcher, Apple, iTunes, you know, what have you, Podbean. This show is a program, part of an independent community radio station, which I encourage you to support materially, but if you want to support me individually, I have a Patreon and LibrePay account. So go to three lefts on Patreon or LibrePay, which is a nonprofit version of Patreon. So, of course, the best thing to do is put your ideas, thinking, and projects talked about in practice yourself. Join a movement for democracy, whether it be electoral, direct, any kind is better than not.